This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where we are two things each and every week. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. It's a big week for us. I have a kind of a preamble to describe just how big a week it is for us in this show. But first, I want to introduce our special guest, Representative Karen Bass, Congresswoman from the 37th, correct, District of California? Excellent. Uh, it's great to have you with us, Congresswoman. Lots to discuss. Let me just go through a brief preamble about why this is such a big week for us. People around the country are hearing this show for the first time on Sirius XM Radio, on POTUS Channel 124. When I created the show... Slightly more than three years ago, I never thought such a thing was possible. But thanks to the audience on podcast platforms, CBSN, and more than 70 radio stations around the country, this has become a thing, and I'm very proud of it. One of the things you should know, uh, dear listeners on SiriusXM, POTUS Channel 124, is this show spans the ideological spectrum, right and left and everything in between. It's a conversation, not an interrogation. And it's politics, policy, and pop culture. And we listen and we learn. That's the whole process of what we do here each and every week. So with that bit of a preamble, and also I want to welcome two brand new affiliates to our ever-widening national radio network, KFMB Radio in my hometown of San Diego and KDKA in Pittsburgh. Very glad to have you aboard. All right. Now, Congresswoman Bass is a very important voice for the moment we are in right now. Let me explain to you why. She has been appointed by the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, to, as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, take the lead on developing legislation responsive to the cries nationwide now for justice reform, policing reform, and more federal involvement in those underlying issues than we have seen previously. So, Congresswoman Bass, an opening general question to you. Where are you on that formation and development of the legislation, and what are your priorities as you look at things now? Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to be on the show. I'm very happy to be here uh, with you. And let me just tell you that we are in the midst, as we speak, of writing legislation that will focus on policing. 
So not general criminal justice reform, although we absolutely need to do that too, but policing. And the number one issue in policing is police accountability. The fact that over the years, many laws have been put in place, one on the state level as well as on the federal level, that make it virtually impossible to hold a police officer accountable. Accountable either through bringing charges and prosecuting, suing or firing. Those three areas, it becomes extremely difficult for any jurisdiction to do that. And then there's some structural problems that we uh, won't be able to address, such as the district attorneys in every community are the ones responsible for bringing charges against police. But the district attorney office also works day in and day out with the police department. And you can imagine how tough that is for DAs to then turn around and charge the very people that they work with every day. And I want to avoid what often happens in these conversations, Congresswoman, where someone like me says, well, what do you want? Because it almost has a condescending paternalistic notion behind it. What do you have to get to stop the outcry for justice or the protest? And I don't want it to come on that basis. I don't want it to sound that way. What are the things that you just described that advance justice in this country, and what's the underlying injustice they're meant to address? Because that seems to me where this conversation has to be, our definition of justice. Well, one feature of justice is accountability. So if a police officer merely needs to say, I'm in fear of my life, and you can shoot someone, that does not serve justice. And you and I, I'm sure, have seen videotape after videotape of officers shooting, uh, killing people, <clears throat> tapes of suspects running away and police officers shooting and killing them in the back and saying they were in fear of their life. So that is one area that would uh, address some of the demands of the protesters. But as you know, and by the way, I'm so inspired by the young people that are out protesting. And I know it's folks of every generation, but it's overwhelmingly young people. And it brings back many memories because I've been marching and dealing with this issue for more years than I want to talk about. And so seeing a whole new wave and a whole new generation of activists is very inspiring for somebody like me. What do you think that's about? What do you think is different now than it was, let's just say, two months ago? Well, I mean, I think that number one, we're all reeling off of the pandemic and that part of the protest scares me. Although I, I will say that you see the majority of protesters protecting themselves with face masks, even protests where they're socially distant, which uh, is interesting. So I think that, um, you know, their cries for police accountability really is because we have seen so many videos now. How many more do we have to see? We saw Ahmad Arbery killed on video. We didn't see Breonna Taylor. That poor woman was asleep in her bed. And the police just without a warrant, or a warrant, but they didn't have, they didn't have to knock or identify themselves. So it's called a no-knock warrant. They kicked her door down. Her boyfriend thought it was a home invasion. He went to defend himself. He fires a gun. He gets arrested and his girlfriend is killed in her bed. And so I think that the combination of seeing so many videos over and over again, that people just reached the point where they said they're completely fed up. How much longer do we have to watch this? So I want to use some of the congressional language and explain it to the audience for a second. Uh, sometimes bills that are large and have many dimensions to them are called an omnibus bill. Right. Do you 
perceive that this bill will be multidimensional, that it will have many component parts, Absolutely. even even if that risks losing some parts of either the Democratic or bipartisan coalition that might otherwise visit upon it if it were smaller and less comprehensive? So I will tell you that, uh, as I mentioned, as we speak, the bill is being written. Uh, these uh, points are being decided. I would tell you, I don't even know how many bills there are, maybe 30, 40 um, bills that members have proposed. When it comes to a big issue like this, it usually ends up with an omnibus, exactly like you said, uh, but that has not been determined right now as to whether or not we do small pieces or whether or not we have an omnibus bill. I will tell you though that I'm inclined to go to push the envelope as far as we can because we have a moment now. And what typically happens is, is that Congress can act in two days or 10 years. You know what I mean? In terms of whether or not a bill is even raised and voted on. But part of the speed and the method in which Congress acts really depends on outside pressure, which is why I'm encouraged, excited, and hopeful when I see the protesters. Now, of course, I hate the fact that the protests have been marred by violence and, uh, and vandalism, but it is what it is. I don't want that to distract away from the real issue because oftentimes you have people come in, and I'm not saying whether they're outside or inside, but who shift the agenda for an opportunist reason. Has that happened in Los Angeles? Oh, absolutely it's happened in Los Angeles. I mean, anytime you see people going in and, and stealing stacks of Nikes, I mean, I do know that similar to 1992, people are feeling a level of economic desperation. And in 1992, a lot of the looting was, was led by that. I have no doubt that people are feeling economic desperation now people who have lost their jobs because of COVID, people who are at home and can't go to work and don't qualify for the unemployment. I wouldn't be surprised if some of those people were the ones in line getting Nikes, but you're getting Nikes that has nothing to do with George Floyd, that has nothing to do with police accountability or police abuse. And what it does is, is that it hurts the overall effort to bring about fundamental change. That's the voice of Karen Bass, Democrat from California, significant player in the future legislation dealing with the underlying issues of policing. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back for our CBSN audience who's been watching this show for several weeks. So you see a different backdrop behind me because I'm not at my home anymore, at least this week. I've been working from the office, came back to my office at the CBS Bureau in downtown D.C. for the first time in 10 weeks. So these are some movie posters behind me. We'll have a conversation about that during the Especial, but I'm in my office. And I hope everyone is well and as safe as you can be. And if you're on the front lines, as I've said every single week of the show, thank you for doing the work that needs to be done. Also, please be safe. Our special guest, Karen Bass, Democratic Congresswoman from 37th District of California. That's the Los Angeles area. Specifically, where in Los Angeles, Congresswoman? I describe my district as from USC to UCLA. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> where were you? I want my audience to know this. In 1992, during the height of the Rodney King disturbances slash riots? I was on the corner of Florence and Normandy. I, uh, my office, I had started an organization two years before to address the intersection between 
drugs and gangs. And uh, I was so concerned that our country's response to the drug epidemic, which I considered a health issue and an economic issue, was to criminalize it. And I was watching all the laws change and it was so obvious we were gonna have mass incarceration. And I have to tell you, I always feel sort of bad about saying this, but in 1991, when the videotape surfaced to Rodney King, people like me who had been fighting for police reforms for over 20 years at that point, uh, we were ecstatic. Finally, there was a videotape. There was no way in the world these officers were not gonna be convicted, no way. The whole world saw what happened to Rodney King. So when the verdict came out, African-American leaders were all told, as soon as the verdict happens, go to First AME Church. And so when the verdicts came down, I was in an absolute state of shock. I just couldn't believe it had happened again. And so I got in my car, I was driving to First AME Church, I drove through Florence and Normandy and didn't realize that that was when the violence was beginning right there. And the thing that was so shocking about the corner of Florence and Normandy is that there were no police anywhere around, none. If you remember during that time, the chief of police, Darrell Gates, was on the other side of town at a fundraiser trying to defeat a ballot initiative that we had worked for for years to take control of his office. Because during those years and prior, the chief of police was more powerful than the mayor because you couldn't fire the chief of police. And Darrell Gates, you know, chokeholds like what killed um, George Floyd, it was a knee as opposed to uh, an arm, but chokeholds, we were fighting those fiercely because so many black people had died from chokeholds. And our chief of police at the time held a press conference to explain to the city that the reason why black people died from chokeholds is because our neck veins were different and our neck veins didn't open up like normal people. <laughs> that was what we were dealing with in 1991 and 92. I wanna ask you a little bit about that Rodney King episode because you saw some of the explanations, if you will, for the officer's behavior that was also part of the Michael Brown situation in Ferguson, which is to say officers were adrenalized, they felt that there was a legitimate fear, that there was a lot of things that preceded Rodney King beating, that he was uh, either out of control or physically threatening, and there was an altercation, and those kinds of things, the adrenalization of the moment, is an excuse for officers in either one of those two contexts. I want you to evaluate that then and now. Well, I mean, I, I do think it's part of the problem of, of police accountability because they kind of always say that. You know, what happened with Rodney King was it was a chase. That was before the media would follow chases. And I, I frankly think most of those people in those high-speed chases survive because the media is right there. Of course they're adrenalized and they're mad. They were chasing him. And when they finally got him to stop and it was, you know, in a, uh, 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 quiet place where they didn't think anybody was around, then they took it out on him because they were mad. It just so happened. And you, you remember back then, video cameras were new. This was way, we didn't even have cell phones. This was way before that. And there happened to be a man who was in a window in an apartment that saw it happen and he pulled out his video camera. So, you know, police officers are trained. It's not acceptable to say, well, I was adrenalized and that's why I had to beat you within an inch of your life. That, that's just not acceptable. But what used to happen before, and, and by the way, I became involved in this issue in 1973. That's 47 years ago. I was in an organization called the Coalition Against Police Abuse. 
And it was because so many people were dying and the police always had the same story after every death and every beating. We were in fear of our lives and usually if the person survived, the police would arrest them for assault against a police officer, even though the person is, you know, beat within an inch of their life. I was afraid, I thought it was a gun, it turns out it was a cigarette lighter. I mean, these are, you, you could just pile them up. There's hundreds of examples of this. And that's why police accountability is at the center of it. And you know what, this is not an anti-police agenda. In any profession, including yours, you don't want bad apples because they give your profession a bad name. You don't want people who get up as reporters and lie then reporters are known, oh, I think somebody calls them fake news. <laughs> you don't want bad apples. And so we want the police to be able to get rid of their bad apples and to not feel like they have to protect them. Do you remember the shooting and death of the 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice? 12 years old. He had a gun, somebody reported it. The police drove up and within 60 seconds killed that child. Well, the police officer that pulled that trigger had just been fired from another department. There's no national database to track bad apples. So the guy that killed uh, George Floyd, if it hadn't have been videotaped and he hadn't have been arrested, or, or yeah, he hadn't have been arrested, he was fired, he could have just gone to another department. So there's a lot to untangle here, and I'm glad we have a long period of time to do it. So historically, local jurisdictions, mayors, prosecutors have, let us just say, an intertwined relationship with the police department. Sometimes it is politically very intertwined. Uh, a Democratic mayor in the city of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, came under withering criticism for suppressing a video of an African-American man shot in by the Chicago police. Right. So it's not as if there's no partisan problem here. Right. Mayors in big cities have this intertwined relationship with the police department. That's right. Can the federal government get in that business and solve it? Well, uh, I don't think the federal government can solve it, but I do think that the federal government has tools the federal government can use, and those tools are called the purse string. So all funding originates on a federal level, and there are federal grants that um, local jurisdictions apply for, and those grants can be restricted. Um, but, you know, it, it's not just the intertwined on the political side. One of the other features of 1992, if you remember, is that the mayor and the police chief did not get along because the mayor wanted to see reforms. And so what the police chief did very deliberately, when I mentioned he was on the other side of town at a fundraiser to defeat a ballot initiative we were working on, he made a strategic decision not to send out the police. And he basically was like, hmm. Let them have at it because they're just tearing up South Central. And, uh, and then what happened is, is that the looting and all got out of hand. It spread citywide. It was a rainbow rebellion. Every part of town had fires or had rioting. And then he couldn't get back out of, he couldn't get back control of it. So the police department can also, if they're in conflict with the mayor, they can turn on or turn off policing. And that can completely compromise not only public safety, which is the number one concern, but it compromises the mayor and ties the mayor's hands. I'm glad you brought all that up because that history of 1992 is not only relevant to our days in terms of understanding the underlying issues here and the history here, but it's the last time the Insurrection Act was used. 
And we'll talk about that on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to, watching, and thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our special guest, Congresswoman Karen Bass. She is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She is also chair of the relevant Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Policing and Crime in this country, which means by the request of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, she is spearheading the effort to draft legislation at the federal level to deal with the issue of policing across our country. I want to ask you about some component parts, legislation that has been proposed, and if you can give any notion to the audience about whether or not that's likely to end up in the final package. Perhaps you can't because you don't want to be that specific, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries uh, introduced a piece of legislation 2015 to ban chokeholds at the federal level. Will that be? That'll be included. Yes, 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 yes. I think that there is widespread support for that. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee, uh, 2015 also. I'm giving the dates of these original bills so you can get a sense, ladies and gentlemen, of how long they've been around and pending. Uh, Law Enforcement Trust Integrity Act would overhaul police training standards and provide incentives for police accountability. That I don't know. Okay. Uh, Brian Schatz and Senator Rand Paul, they're both senators, one from a Democrat from Hawaii, one Republican from Kentucky, stopped the Militarizing Our Law Enforcement Act, also introduced in 2015, to limit the transfer of military-grade equipment to local police departments. Now, that could very well be... You do know that there, there will be two bills, of course. There will be a Senate bill, there will right. be a House bill. The House might have multiple bills. I know that is an issue that members of the House have raised as well, uh, and we'll see whether that's included. I would imagine it will be in the Senate bill for sure. How about the question of qualified immunity? There's been legislation suggested on that. And explain, and if that's going to be in there, or you think it might, explain to our audience what that means. Qualified immunity essentially means that police officers cannot be sued in civil court, meaning that they have immunity. Again, it's an example where there's several examples of where police officers uh, are, are not basically, are not held accountable because in law they can't be held accountable. So I always say you can't sue them, fire them, or prosecute them. And what about a, you mentioned this before, but I want to make sure if, if, if you consider this to be a priority for any future legislative response, a national database on these underlying issues. Uh, I think a national database is, is critical. And, and again, I use the example of Tamir Rice. And so a national database means, again, I don't believe any profession wants to promote or continue bad apples. You know, this, this is a situation in a lot of professions. You have teachers, you have doctors, you have lawyers. All of those professions have ways that they hold their own profession accountable. And they also have databases. You can get in California and look at the California Medical Association, and you can find out about doctors who have been brought up on charges. And I'm not saying something like that is necessarily needed where uh, police officers that have been brought up on charges, but how about police officers who have been fired for egregious behavior, either corruption, uh, police officer involved violence, you know, inappropriate behavior. Do you want that police officer in your community? I don't think so. Public health officials have for a couple of years suggested, and some have said, that police brutality and institutionalized racism within police departments is a public health issue. Do you agree? 
I absolutely agree it's a public health issue. You know, uh, a lot of people look at violence as a public health issue, and I certainly believe that it is. But, you know, part of uh, what I am concerned about with police officers as well is their health, their health psychologically, their health mentally, especially when they work in very uh, traumatic environments. I spent several years working in the emergency room in L.A. County in the trauma center, and I believe when you work in environments like that, it's not bad to take a break, <laughs> to do a different job. When you work at that level of intensity where you're always seeing grief, you're always dealing with, with trauma, sometimes it impacts you. And I think it's not a bad idea for people to be able to have resources so that they can seek help when they need it. I was a police reporter in three different cities for the first six years of my newspaper career before I got into television. And I can tell you the trauma is real. And police departments and police officers live with, if not the worst side of life, a greater proportion of negative sides of life on a day-to-day basis. And it does inflict a cumulative trauma. I don't, I don't think there's any question about that. I think that's one of the responses you get from police unions and those who are sympathetic to especially beat cops. You have no idea how hard this is. Exactly. Absolutely right. And you know, after a while, you, you lose your empathy. And, and if you're working in a, in a community that you don't understand for the first place, you don't live in that community, you come in with a very bad perception of the community, I think that just tends to get worse, which is why I really support efforts uh, involving community uh, policing community-based policing, where police officers work in collaboration with community groups and residents. They get to know the areas, they build relationships with people, that builds trust, and that's able to break through with, with a lot of that. But one of the problems that we faced in Los Angeles as we tried to transform our police department is that we would build very strong relationships in difficult neighborhoods with the police officers and then two years down the line, they get transferred out and then they bring in somebody else and you got to start all over again. You know, so that's a real tough thing. And, and one of the things that the police department has looked to here in areas where community based policing is a high priority is to get police officers that would be willing to commit to the neighborhood and not just be in the neighborhood for a couple of years until they could move out. A lot of times inner city areas, police officers want to be there to get their stripes and then they leave and move to areas that are not as challenging. What is your timeline for this legislation? <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> it's, uh, it's absolutely ASAP. And I believe that we, we, we will be voting on an omnibus or multiple bills before the month of June is over. And is it your goal, is it the imperative to have something on the president's desk this year? Absolutely. And, 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 and what, what are the legislative levers? There are other things that have to pass. There will probably be another economic uh, bill to address underlying issues related to COVID-19. Will this have to be a part of that to get the maximum leverage to get it on the president's desk? I honestly don't know that. Uh, it is possible because it might coincide with another package. But, you know, there's multiple levers. There's a lot of major programs that run out of funding. You know, there's the appropriation process. There's a budget. Pro- you know, there's, there's a lot of different uh, levers. Now, I'm hoping that the most important lever of all are the hundreds of thousands of people that are out there protesting. That should be the lever. The people are speaking. They want to see change. We should be responsive to that. And do you believe that this 
will be reinforced by action at the state level as well? State legislatures will also change things? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, and I think you're seeing that. I mean, California is probably, you know, one of the leading examples. But yes, I do think that it will incentivize change. And I think that we can incentivize change because, again, the federal government holds the purse strings. How far along are you in this process? 80% there, 90% there? Is the bill almost done? Where are you? You know, it's a good question. I would probably say under 50%. Under 50%. Okay. I think so. And I, I'm saying that knowing that the writing is going on this minute and I'm not positive, but my guess would be about 50%. And my also guess would be the, the staff that are writing it are going to have a very full weekend. When do you think it will be unveiled? Next week. Next week. Do you have a date? No. Okay. And how uh, is the process of drafting it? Are you talking to each other like we are talking to each other via Zoom? Uh, are, are you collaborating uh, remotely as everyone else is, more or less? We are Zooming day and night. I will tell you that yesterday I had, you know, within the Democratic caucus, we have a lot of sub-caucuses. Um, and, you know, the progressive caucus, the new Democrats, you know, the blue dogs. And, and so I was doing Zoom calls with the different groups. I did one yesterday that was really, really interesting with a caucus called the Problem Solvers Caucus. Mm -hmm. Yes. It has an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. That was a fascinating call, very rewarding. Uh, my Republican colleagues were very receptive. And there were a couple of them that were either police officers themselves, retired, or their children were active police officers. And uh, it was a real, it was a real moment. And I think that everyone, and you know what, it's a perfect example of who wants somebody like that in their profession. You know what I mean? And they, I mean, everybody uh, has been appalled by watching somebody slowly killed on video. But then you have mayors, like there's a mayor in Mississippi who said, I don't understand what the problem is. I don't understand why people are upset. I didn't see anything wrong in that tape. And that just leaves you crestfallen, <laughs> you know? Yes, that's the voice of Karen Bass, our very special guest. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout coming up in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our special guest, Congresswoman Karen Bass, Democrat, California, 37th District. She is spearheading the legislative effort in the House of Representatives to draft legislation responsive to issues of police brutality, police accountability, and the like. And I want you to explain to our audience that you are a historic figure within the confines of the California legislature. Are you not, Congresswoman? Yes. Tell us why. Yes. Well, because in 2008, I became Speaker of the Assembly, and according to records, it was the first time an African-American woman was elected Speaker of any state legislature, not just California. So you know a thing or two about putting legislation together. You talked, before we went to the last break, about an encouraging conversation with some Republicans. Do you anticipate, are you planning for, should the nation plan for and look for Republican cooperation on this legislation? Yes, absolutely. We absolutely should. And but but I do want to explain in the dilemma that I know you know well. Um, my Republican colleagues, I think many of them would like to do the right thing, but they basically are kind of paralyzed because they never know what the president is going to do on any given moment. And if they do the wrong thing, they face an attack from him, and every member of the House is up for re-election. 
And so I am hoping that at the same time as I'm talking to my Republican colleagues, that they're talking to the president and get him on the same page. We did that with the First Step Act, which was the first big criminal justice bill in many, many years. We were able to get him to sign the bill and to get the Republicans on the same page. And I'm hoping that the same thing will happen this time. I want to ask you about that because, as you know, this week and in previous weeks, the president, the Republican National Committee and others who are supportive of the Trump agenda say, hey, look, the president got the First Step Act. He increased funding for historically black colleges and universities. He put or agreed to put at Tim Scott, the African-American Republican Center from South Carolina's urging opportunity zones in the tax reform legislation. He's done a lot for African-American communities. You say no, what? He's not. He is absolutely not. First of all, I am glad that he signed the First Step Act that was put on his desk after Congress did the work. Very important. He signed it. We did the work. Uh, in terms of opportunity zones, opportunity zones are a good thing with major, major loopholes and communities are terrified that opportunity zones is going to increase the displacement of people who live in inner city areas. Uh, his uh, funding of HBCUs has not been significant. Uh, and also he claims that he has reduced the unemployment rate prior to COVID uh, in the African-American community. He did no such program. African-American unemployment rate was reduced because the economy was improving. It was not because of any specific policy or measure that he did. In fact, what he did on his very first day in office was uh, institute policies that hurt the African-American community. And ironically, one of the things he did in his first week of office was to roll back consent decrees of police departments, where police departments had had trouble and they were under federal uh, supervision, and he rolled that back. So, I mean, I could speak all day about policies that he's done that have absolutely hurt the African-American community, and the president, with complicity from the Senate, have approved numerous very conservative judges, some judges who are not sure if they agreed with Brown versus Board of Education uh, Act that integrated schools, uh, so I could go through each one of his departments and tell you ways that he has instituted, supported, or promoted policies that absolutely hurt the African-American population, Latino, Asian, Native American population, and the poor white community. So when you talk about consent decrees, I, another term of art there is pattern and practice. Is that what you're talking about? Which is to say federal monitoring of pattern and practices of police departments. The Obama administration had put several of those forward. The Trump administration, I my correct records are correct, only one. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. That's right. And I mean, you know, you can go on and on. I mean, we're suffering from the pandemic today because the president didn't get control over it and he dismantled what President Obama put in place. His absolute obsession with Pre President Obama has led him to reverse many good policies. Uh, President Obama divested from private prisons. President Trump, one of the other first things he did was reestablish the contracts with private prisons. Uh, what has happened on immigration? I mean, you can just go down the line. So I and many other African-Americans find it very offensive and insulting that he says in a very patronizing manner, look all that I've done for you, you should support me. 
I want to ask you about how credible you believe Joe Biden is on these issues, considering that he was the author or the central driver behind legislation at the federal level in the mid-1990s that many in the African-American community look back on and say advanced mass incarceration. I'm so happy you raised that subject because I mentioned to you a few minutes ago that I had started an organization in South Central Los Angeles because I saw mass incarceration coming. I saw a health problem and an economic problem that was being dealt with, uh, that was being criminalized. And I will tell you that one of the reasons for my desperation and wanting to start an organization to try to counter the, the, the policy direction was because community members were demanding the laws increase. They were demanding increased police presence. They were demanding laws that took the youth away and the, and the slogan at the time, if you remember, was there's a lost generation. I did not agree with the crime bill. I fought it tooth and nail in the communities, but I understand why that bill was done, why uh, Senator Biden uh, supported it. Members of the Black Caucus at that time, and there were very few members, but there were members who supported it and members who opposed it because their constituents were demanding it. So I think if you look back, it was the wrong thing to do, but I do understand that the elected officials were under tremendous pressure to do that. What I did was try to educate and organize the community to say, yes, we're having a serious problem, but this is not the solution. Is it imperative for his running mate to not only be a woman, but be an African-American woman? I don't know about imperative, but I would certainly like to see that. (laughs) I mean, we want the vice president to pick the best running mate that number one is gonna help him get elected. And number two, you know, one of the the really nice things of the Obama presidency that I'm sure that there will be books written about is the relationship between those two men. That was like the most functional, positive relationship between a president and a vice president that I can remember. And you think about Cheney and Bush and and other uh, relationships. And I think he would be looking for the same type of relationship. And I think his description of it is looking for somebody that he's simpatico with. Right. But do do you think it would be any way deflating in this moment for African-Americans to say, we were the central constituency which propelled you to the nomination, and in this moment we still can't get an African-American on the ticket? Yes, I do. I think that it would be energizing. It would be deflating. Yes, I think it would be energizing and exciting for there to be an African-American woman on the ticket. If there's not an African-American woman on the ticket, I think people will be disappointed. That's the voice of Karen Bass, our very special guest for our radio audience. Sadly, we have to go away, but if you are listening on the podcast or watching on CBSN, stay tuned for the takeout outtake especial. I'll talk to you a little bit about my movie posters when we do that. Stay tuned for that on the other side of the break. With the radio audience, we'll see you next week. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to The Takeout. I'll take a special, the kind of lighter, slightly fun and games component of our program. But I want to get to a couple of other issues before we do the fun and game stuff with our special guest, Congresswoman Karen Bass, Democrat from California, 37th District of California. Um, So... As I understand it, you are part of the conversation between those in the Bernie Sanders world and the Joe Biden world, uh, especially on economic policy. Uh, A, how is that going? And what is your prognostication about the Sanders supporters alignment and enthusiasm for the Biden campaign? 
Well, uh, it's going well. We, um, our task is to complete a, uh, a policy document in five weeks, and tomorrow will be our third meeting, so we're coming to the end. I think things are shaping together nicely. There's a nice sense of, of uh, solidarity and camaraderie on our task force. Um, in terms of the Sanders folks, I think that the majority of the Sanders folks will come on board. I think that the Senator himself is absolutely critical as to the level of support. But I also know that all of the Sanders supporters, all of them, understand what would happen to the world and certainly what will happen to our country if we have to endure four more years of this dysfunction. And the alienation that existed between the Sanders and Clinton camps in 2016, you do not expect to reassert itself this time? I think that there will be a degree of that, but I think it's much different this time because remember the last time the uh, Sanders folks felt that they had been cheated. I don't think that they feel that way this time. I mean, the only feeling of being cheated is that the process was stopped because of COVID more than anything but also because the, the senator um, you know, stepped down and endorsed Biden. And that happened, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was right at the very beginning of COVID. But it wasn't like COVID shut it down. It was that Biden won. And, and I think he won fair and square. And I think that's a difference. The last time people didn't you know, they, they felt that, that Sanders was, was robbed of the nomination. And, in this, and in this, in this time, the Sanders uh, campaign and those who spoke on behalf of it participated in the DNC process before the 2020 process and therefore felt more included, at least in the structure and the rules-based right. approach. Right. But we are talking about the leaders. Mm-hmm. There are the masses right, and, right. And who've never even met the senator, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that's where it's, it's going to depend on him. Very good. So fun and games portion. Uh, Congresswoman, for the entire history of the show, we've asked three questions of every single guest. And our audience loves the answers because it helps them get to know them a little bit better. So in no particular order, most influential book in your life, uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to indulge yourself musically, you're going to just jump into your music of, of your lifelong favorite tunes, would that what artist or genre would that most likely be? Well, I have to tell you that in terms of music, it would be nostalgic music, more from my youth, Motown, those those type of songs, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson. Those would be where I would land. Stevie Wonder. Um, in terms of my favorite book, I will tell you my my favorite book in recent times is Leadership. I think it's called Leadership in Turmoil, and it's about uh, the presidents, Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, and Lincoln. Um, just a, a brilliant book examining uh, what they went through. And then my favorite movie, hmm. Well, my favorite movie, I, I, I guess the movie that's on my mind right now is the movie 13, which is a documentary, and it's about the um, criminal justice system. So as you mentioned earlier in our program, you've been at this work a very long time. Very long time. Explain to my audience your ratio of frustration to hope. Oh, well, it's way on the hope side now. It really is. I mean, being out there with the protesters, I went out uh, one evening and uh, watching them on TV and seeing that new generation, is j- it just makes me exhale and feel like at some point I'll be able to retire 
and feel very comfortable that there's a new wave of folks that will carry on the struggle. My, my frustration is that they have to carry on the struggle. <laughs> that, that my generation couldn't have brought about change and fixed things so that they didn't have to continue to go through this. I want to ask you about something that I interpret uh, that is possibly dramatically different about this moment, which is to say you've talked about the youth and they're there in the streets. Everyone can see that. And the conversation has a different level, it seems to me, which is not just about what the law says, but what our implicit orientations to these underlying issues is. And I sense in the younger generation that they have that conversation in much more vivid ways than anyone in my generation or generations older than mine have ever had. Uh, in terms of the underlying things, you're referring to the structural biases, yeah. biases, inherent biases, and things you're not even initially aware of. Right. But you have to dig deeper to find and examine. Yeah, no, I actually think we did that rather intensely in our in my generation as well. Okay. Uh, because it was the 60s. I mean, we were coming off the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. We were coming off the civil rights movement. It was peace and love. You know what I mean? I mean, I think our generation did that too. I think our generation just lost sight of it, frankly. And so I am hopeful for this generation. But when you turn on the TV screen, it's pretty much in many cities, majority white people protesting. To me, that is beyond encouraging. It's not on the shoulders of, of black folks anymore. And we are a multiracial society. It's not a black white paradigm anymore. If you wanna look at people who died at the hands of police, you have to look at African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, and Asians. You have to have to look at all of us. But what's so fascinating is that even after all of these years, our country still refuses to come to grips with even being able to discuss our history and to discuss race. Uh, people want to act like these are our new problems, but what's fundamental to these problems is the fact that this country has been in denial and absolutely refused to look and discuss race. So many times when reporters are covering the protests, even though on the screen behind them are all white kids, they still talk about it as though everybody's black. <laughs> and my big concern is the vandalism and the violence, regardless of who does it, is black people are going to be blamed. That's the voice of Karen Vass, our very special guest. Congresswoman, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. We will keep track, uh, as the entire country will, to the work of your legislative team and your legislative endeavors with the Congressional Black Caucus and everyone across the House of Representatives. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Enjoy doing the show. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. 